Welcome to Women in Leadership Talk, where you'll hear from successful women who are empowering other women with their stories of adversity, resiliency, and success. And here is your host, Vicki Bradley, founder and CEO of Women in Leadership Empowered. So I want to officially welcome everyone to the Women in Leadership Talk podcast. We are super excited to have Jennifer Reischer here with us today. So Jen, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Vicki. It's great to be here. We're thrilled, thrilled to have you. So I'd like to formally introduce you and just share a little bit about your background uh, before we jump into, you know, questions and conversation. So Jennifer is on a mission, (laughs) which is you're going to learn about today, but she's definitely on a mission to help us have much needed conversations about the emotional side of money. And she wrote this great book called We Need to Talk, a memoir about wealth. I don't know if everybody can see that. Um, but you know, this book totally inspired me. So we'll talk, we'll talk a bit more about this in a few minutes, but in this book, she tells her story and explores the impact of wealth on identity, on relationships, on a sense of place in the world. Um, Jennifer was born in Seattle, Washington. She grew up in Oregon and graduated from Connecticut college. So in 1991, she uh, began her journey with Microsoft where she worked as a recruiter and a product manager. She and her husband, David, they have two daughters. And if you just joined, you heard us saying one daughter got to join her for Thanksgiving. Um, And she lives in the San Francisco area where David is the CEO of World Reader, which is a nonprofit uh, he co-founded to create a world where everyone is a reader and has that ability to read. Last year, in response to COVID, Jennifer and David launched a uh, campaign called Half My Daff, and that's a challenge which has inspired millions of dollars in charitable giving. And, you know, maybe, Jennifer, we just, uh, you know, maybe just share an update as to where you are with Half My Daff, and we're going to talk more about that as we go. So what, where are you currently with half my DAF? Like, cause I know when okay, we spoke last year, yeah, it was 8.6 million, I think. And now you're like way more than that. <laughs> it's been really exciting. And it really started during COVID because, you know, all of a sudden we were sheltering in place. My husband and I were sitting just outside, you know, talking about all the need and the, the challenges that nonprofits were facing to serve people in need. And, you know, they couldn't hold their luncheons. They couldn't hold their galas. They couldn't kind of raise money in the same way. And that yet there was more need than ever. And we really wanted to do more. Um, I kind of had already doubled down on places I was already supporting, but wanted to really do more. And we were very aware of a bunch of money that is sitting in donor advised funds. Mm -hmm. And at the time it was a hundred, I mean, this is so much money. It's $120 billion. Wow. And these are charitable dollars. This is, you know, stuck in charitable dollars. It's not, you know, it's, it's to be given away and it's not moving. And so we really wanted to, to, nudge people, get people inspired to give. And we came up with this idea of getting people to commit to halving their DAF, half spending down half the money in their donor advised funds now. <laughs> and and we, we said, you know, we gave them a challenge. If you spend half of your DAF by September 30th, 2020, um, we will match every gift that you give. And we really were just inspiring people to give in general. We didn't kind of insert ourselves in that process. And it was really, it really was amazing because our million helped spur one $8.6 million out of wow. DAFs to nonprofits. And that was just in five months. 
um, which was really exciting. And even more exciting was sort of the community it built around that mm-hmm. and the excitement the donors felt kind of feeling like, you know, I think people want to do the right thing. And so when they do the right thing, it feels good. And so donors were saying, you know, this is really what I needed, this inspiration. And people started asking us, you know, when you do this next year, how are you? And we hadn't really planned on doing it two years, but we did it this past year. And I mean, I'm thrilled because we moved, we've now moved $19.2 million out of DAFs. In, out into nonprofits. Wow. So it's super successful and really rewarding. And um, we want to continue to inspire giving because the world has a lot of need out there. And yeah, yeah. especially right now. Right. And, and yes. so what a beautiful, beautiful way that you've inspired people to, you know, to take that money because the money was sitting and, and being able to get it into not-for-profit so that, you know, you're getting thumbs up. <laughs> So that, you know, so that it's used in a way that can really have impact and and help, uh, you know, different people, different situations across the world. So good for you. That's awesome. So thank you. I didn't mean to kind of go there. That's okay. And now I really want to talk about it because if you go to www.halfmydaft.com, you can see all the nonprofits that people have supported. And we have a list of, of, you know, thousands um, and then the places that we were able to match. And um, last, you know, this past year in 2021, we kind of had extra mu- buckets of money for racial justice issues, climate and environment, education in underserved communities and reproductive health. And so we were able to match a lot of organizations um, that are that are working in those, those different areas. So it's really exciting to kind of see all the places that other people are supporting with their, their charitable dollars. And then also the places we were able to, to match. Um, So it's really exciting. Good for you. Well, I can feel the energy coming from you. (laughs) I mean, it's such a, it's such a heartfelt when you can give. And I mean, the impact that you, you and David both are having is just huge. Um, So thank you. Thank you from everyone for doing that. And so let's jump into, you know, uh, more about your book and why, why you felt this need to write a story to get people to talk about wealth. Like, where did that come from for you? Well, I have to back up because, um, but when I was 25, I got really lucky. Um, And actually I was lucky before that because I was born into a stable family. I had a access to education and all that sort of set me up for the opportunity in 1991 to join Microsoft. And that's where I met David. I also got stock that ended up being worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. David had stock worth millions. Um, Six years after we were, we met and were married and we were expecting our first child. um, David took a job at a small unknown startup that was selling books on the internet <laughs> called amazon.com. Wow. And, you know, he was the 37th employee there. And before he started, the company wasn't public. Six weeks later, it went public. And, you know, we got lucky. We suddenly had more money than we could really wrap our heads around. And, you know, I want to say up front that money makes life easier. You know, I am very fortunate. But wealth really surprised me. Um, We have such a narrow and sort of incomplete view of wealth in our country. We see the highly visible rich. (laughs) You know, we all know the Kardashians. We know about Elon Musk. We know about Jeff Bezos. You know, we see the stereotypes and kind of the caricatures and extremes. Mm -hmm. 
But most people with wealth are much more diverse than what people see or believe. And, you know, eight out of 10 people with wealth grew up middle class or poor. So we're new to the experience, like me, and we're not talking to each other about the impact that wealth can have. I mean, it has an impact. I felt that impact, you know, as a parent, were we going to spoil our kids Um, as a sister? Was my brother resentful? As a friend, people started to look at me differently. And I think the most impactful place was sort of as a, as a daughter, I felt it was really painful to feel as though my parents disapproved of what we had. Yeah. And, you know, Normally in my life, if I have a problem or a question, I turn to my friends and I talk to them. If I want it right now, like, okay, how do I help my aging parents? How am I supposed to work through? You know, should we move? I talk to everyone I know. I get ideas, I get advice, I hear different perspectives. So that's how I normally do my research and gather information. And with money, that's not happening. We don't talk about money-related issues, at least in my generation. I think the next generation is, is better at this. But mm-hmm. for me, I, mean, I couldn't talk about suddenly having a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, I can't talk to people. I've got to, I got to find a book, <laughs> the self-help book. And, and there really are no books. So, you know, I wrote the book I needed and wanted to read. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it for the really the millions of Americans like me who have more money than they had growing up, or they have more money than others in their extended family because income inequality happens within families too. Yeah, or they true. have more money than others, other friends. So I really wanted to, I'm not prescriptive. I'm not telling people how to you know, do rich right. I don't have the answer for that, but I'm offering up a story that really hasn't been told. Yeah. Um, that explores things like, you know, how do you, travel with another family that doesn't share your resources or, you know, how upsetting it can be to feel a friend's jealousy and not really be able to share what's going on in your life. Um, But really I want to get us talking because, you know, we're afraid, we're afraid we're going to hurt people's feelings or we're afraid we're not going to measure up or reject. We, We just don't have that muscle build around talking about money. And yet, Talking will help us connect. It'll help us learn from each other. And, you know, we all have a money story. Yeah, Yeah, so true. So true. Well, I I read your book (laughs) and I was totally engaged in it. I couldn't stop, you know, reading Um, so many lessons that came from that. And, you know, you've you've touched on a few things, but I I really want us to talk about like, you know, what people imagine as, as ideal, ideal, but not feeling that satisfaction um, when it comes with riches, right? Like, I mean, that's one thing. And, and so one thing you talked about is like your relationships, right? Relationships with, with David, relationships at work, your, your, your family. So let's talk about that a little bit. And even purpose, like how does, how does that change things? And, and what does people What's the ideal image that people think is, is right? <laughs> oh, there's a lot to talk about there. I think yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I used to think, oh, you know, money doesn't make you happy, but I sort of secretly thought that it just might. <laughs> and, and, you know, I remember it as a high schooler with my best friend kind of imagining what would we do if we had a million dollars? 
right? And how many of us have have kind of imagined that? And the picture yeah. is like, oh, well, you know, at the time, yeah, I'd have a cute boyfriend and a fancy car, but but I also thought my life would be perfect, yeah. that all that money would change everything. And I think we set ourselves up this way in many ways, like around money a lot. Like if, if only I could, you know, get that big promotion, then if only I could lose 20 pounds, then if only, you know, so we set ourselves up and, and that happened to me and still myself, I still let in, you know, my feelings still get hurt. I still make mistakes. So that was sort of a surprise and, and, a, and a reality. And I also think the piece about, you know, what does make you happy it's sort of like anyone who has ever kind of, you know, gone through retail therapy, like they're in, they're not in a good place They go out and they buy something. And it's like, Ooh, that's really fun and exciting. I have this new item, but how long does that last? Yeah. And the same is true with bigger, bigger, bigger. And um, it's really not about the size of the house you're living in as much as who's in that house with you. Yeah. And, you know, research tells us this too. Um, Yes, every, you know, you feel happier with every dollar that you have. If you're struggling to get by, every dollar makes a difference. But that's up to a point. And there's really well-known research from Princeton University that says at $75,000 a year, and this is research from 2010, so maybe it's a little bit more, but at, at you know, $80,000 a year, your happiness plateaus. <laughs> you can have twice as much. You can have 10 times as much, and you're not going to be any happier. And I can say that from personal experience. And I, you know, there's, there's, there's research that shows, you know, maybe how you spend or think about your money might make you more or less happy. Mm -hmm. Um, If you spend on experiences rather than things that tends to make people feel happier, people feel happier when they spend on other people. So giving is, is a source of happiness, but Truly what makes us happy and, and real lot of research has gone into this is our connections with other people. Yeah. It's the quality of our relationships in our lives. So I've learned that um, knowing that, you know, what, what is, where is happiness really found? It's, it's in my relationship with my husband, it's being a mom and, and our family and, and also feeling a sense of purpose in my life and, and that brings meaning. Um, money only gets you so far. And once kind of your needs, basic needs are met and you've kind of achieved comfort, you can take a vacation. Then, you know, you, you're, you realize that your happiness is really about the people you're with. Yeah, that's so true. Those connections are critical. And, and, you know, one of the things that, you know, you mentioned is when you became wealthy, you kind of felt like this outsider, Right. And and so people think, oh, yeah, because you have money, right, that it ends all other things. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. What were some of the themes that came up for you that made you feel like you were an outsider? I think it's the way people perceive wealth and yeah. how they look at you. I mean, I don't know. Maybe people on the call are thinking, well, I can't relate to her or mm-hmm. she's other than me. And I feel that, and I, I'm not other. I, and I, I guess the best way to kind of describe it is like it happened right away, where we were just having this new. I was a new mom, 
Um, we, it was amazing. Uh, this kind of curtain had lifted and I was in the world of parenthood. And I couldn't believe how much I loved this, this daughter that we had. And I joined a mother's group. And in that mother's group, I, I so quickly bonded with the other women there. We were all going through this experience together. We shared you know, the highs and the lows that, you know, not sleeping through the night and, and trying to breastfeed and, and the amazement of how, and all the emotions. It was just so bonding and so wonderful to be in that mother's group. Um, but this other curtain had lifted and suddenly we had all this wealth. And in that space, really there was silence mm. and I didn't, want anyone in my mother's group to know I really did everything I could to keep our wealth hidden. I was worried that people wouldn't think I could relate to their problems when I was having the exact same problems. My baby wasn't, I felt just like any other new mom. And I was really concerned about being judged or, or being seen differently. And I didn't, I was embarrassed by this and it wasn't a connecting force. I, it wasn't something I sh other women shared with me. And now, of course, looking back, I, I realized that I was um, not sharing this because I wanted to be connected. But then you think, well, how connected are you really if you're not sharing what's truly going on in your life? And so, you know, that's exhausting. And I, I spent a decade. I spent years trying to hide, you know, what we had in the name of being connected to other people, because like going back to what I said earlier, it's like, that's what brings us joy is really feeling seen and understood. And I didn't feel like I could be seen or understood in that space. Um, which is why now, you know, it's taken me a, a book and, and a lot of, you know, working through this, um, but I want to help other people, you know, start talking sooner than I did and mm -hmm. as a way to connect with each other. And it doesn't really matter how many zeros are at the end of your, your, your bank account, um, because I think we can all learn um, and all connect more if we kind of stepped into those places in our lives where we're kind of keeping a distance or we feel a disconnect with people around money. So, you know, you ask about feeling on the outside and I definitely, you know, felt that. And it's not a comfortable place to be, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. And that plays out in so many different ways in life, right? Not just wealth, but in so, I mean, and, you know, you talked about racial injustices earlier and equality. And I mean, it can play out in so many, so many ways in our lives. And, and when we can connect truly and deeply with someone, we can then you know, try to understand. We can't always, we can't be in their shoes, but we can try and understand what's happening. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. And you wouldn't think that for someone who has got all this money, you wouldn't think that they would feel those same challenges and struggles and be worried about the same things that somebody who, you know, doesn't have money. So it, it, that's a great example. So let's, well, yeah, because money doesn't solve everything. I mean, you're still a thinking, feeling person and those yeah. emotions, you can't escape the messiness of emotions and, you know, ever, <laughs> ever. So. Yeah. yeah, very true. And, and, and so I know you and I talked about this a little bit when we originally spoke, but let's talk about identity and the role that that plays in our lives. And, and you really artic articulated that beautifully, I think throughout your book, um, you know, how we define ourselves 
right? Like, and, and, you know, as a mother, a wife, uh, whether you're rich, you're poor, like all of those things. So what is that, what impact did that have on you when you think about the different identity roles that you've had? Well, thinking about that same time, identity and, and being a woman and being a mom and, and realizing that my identity had been so wrapped up in my work Mm-hmm. And, and that moment of kind of trying to decide, should I, should I stay home with my baby? I want to, but I'm like, have never defined myself as, as someone who stays home. And so grappling with, with leaving the workplace and who am I now? And, you know, being in a place where people would say, well, what do you do? And then feeling like, well, I just stay home. It, it, that was a definitely place where I grappled with identity. Um, but when it comes to money, I mean, I think we all have an identity around money. And it, I mentioned earlier, kind of our money story. And this is, this is where we, you know, in our childhood, we learn our beliefs and our habits around money. And um, it comes from our parents, which comes from their parents. And I think it's really important for all of us to know that money story and understand it because it is part of our identity. So for me, you know, my father um, grew up, he was the oldest of, of five, and his father had dropped out of school in eighth grade to work. Um, he remembers rushing to the dinner table so that he could get enough to eat. I mean, his family just didn't have a lot of money. His mom was a second grade teacher, but she was staying home with the kids. And his feeling of like worrying about getting enough really came, he brought that to, to, to our family. And I remember, you know, kind of tiptoeing past him at his, when he was sitting at his desk kind of paying bills because finances really made him nervous and grumpy and, and, and anxious and stressed. And so I definitely took that on. Um, my mom grew up a, a only child in Flint, Michigan. Her, her father was a prominent lawyer and he didn't let his wife work because it wasn't mm. proper at that time for women to work, even though they had met at university of Michigan. She was, you know, she was a kind of, she was on the board at the hospital and she was a volunteer and they, they were very um, aware of kind of proper etiquette. And they had also lived through the depression and that had a big impact on them. I remember, um, you know, being with my grandmother and, and if we went out to eat, she kind of hit, took saltines off the table and hit them in her purse, you know, just in case, like she was still living through the depression. And part of what they got through the, the depression was sort of this wariness of the rich, those people who had a lot because they didn't have a lot. And that got passed to my mom. And then to me, so when I was growing up, you know, I grew up with middle-class values around working, saving money, being frugal, um, being kind of wary of, of those people. And so as I was growing up, my identity really got shaped around being responsible with money, saving, 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 saving. And, you know, excess spending was bad. If I was wanted to be a good, responsible daughter, I saved money and I didn't talk about it. Because I remember asking, you know, how much does, asking about my dad's salary. And that was none of my business. It was impolite. It was unladylike to care about money. And so with that identity and feeling like, you know, to, to please my parents, to be a good daughter, I had to save and I had to, you know, 
keep quiet about money. And then when suddenly I I became what I had kind of grown up prejudice against, that was an identity crisis, right? And that's part of why I, I tried to keep everything hidden. And it's really interesting, you know, now I know that, I mean, I think part of why it's important to know your money story is because things will trigger you and you have biases and being aware of the, the emotions that come up because money's really emotional. Yeah. Money brings up all kinds of emotions, stress or anxiety. It brings up shame on both. I mean, shame around poverty, but shame around excess. So it, you, being aware of the emotions that are coming up is really important because that means that you can be in control of them rather than letting them control you. Yeah. And so I still, you know, circle the block in search of free parking, but <laughs> I have to remind myself if I, it's making me stressed out because I'm late <laughs> for a meeting that I could just go pay for the parking or buy those raspberries that are very expensive or, you know, so it's, I still have to override my money story even now um, because I don't identify as someone rich or I didn't grow up that way. And now it's like, well, I have to embrace that and move from kind of any sense of shame or guilt or anxiety around that into, and I think this is part of why talking is important is, is into a sense of purpose and meaning. And I am incredibly privileged. Um, so I want to do what's right for the world, um, with what I have. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I'll, I'll veer off identity for just a second, but you know, you, you also talked a lot in your book about things you did with your daughters, right. To make sure that they were grounded and that they were aware that not everybody's growing up the way that they have and the importance of educating them and teaching them, um, you know, just how to navigate life, really. Well, I think, you know, kids learn by watching you. Yeah. And what I really, you know, after decades of worrying about spoiling our kids, I think really if if I'm walking through the world um, in the way that feels right to me, my kids will follow that. They're, they're watching me and it's really about living your values um, day to day, week to week, you're like really living your values because your kids are watching. And I think my daughter, our daughters watched us. They, they heard what we were talking about around the dinner table, what we felt proud about. Um, it's about attitude and, and gratitude, you know, going into the grocery store is a teachable, teachable moment. And, you know, how are you, what are you doing? Are you, are you choosing like everything the most expensive or are you really thinking through what you value, you know, where you're spending your dollars. When you get to the meat counter, how do you interact with the person behind the counter? Are you gracious? Are you respectful? Um, how do you interact with pe- people that you're checking out? Do you return the cart at the end? I mean, pe- your kids yeah. are watching all these, these things that you're doing in your life. And so I think, um, I think parents really worry about spoiling their kids at, at any level, but I, I, I think it's really like, being very conscious of your own values and what, how you're kind of showing up in the world. Yeah, that's beautiful. And you're right. You're right. Cause they are sponges, right? They'll take on, even when we don't think they're listening today, <laughs> when they get a little older, <laughs> you hear them say something and you go, Oh, so they were listening. You get it reflected back, the good and the bad. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. I'm getting a little bit of those things now. <laughs> 
So that's, that's awesome. And, and thank you for sharing that. I, I do want to just go back to identity for just a second, because I see this a lot, even in my work, right? Like where women will, you know, will be talking about um, how they, you know, potentially lost their career for an example. Um, and, and that was such a big part of who they were and it, it almost destroys them, or at least a sense of themselves, they feel lost, right? Or when somebody retires, it's the same, it's that same identity loss. And so I love what you, what you brought up about, you know, what's your purpose and how does that align with your values? And if we can remember that, then that identity is more around alignment with your value versus, you know, trying to be the wife, the mother, the career, all of those pieces, um, so I, thank you for, thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. Yeah. I think it has to go a little deeper into who you are rather yeah. than the surface, you know, roles that you're playing and exactly. al- aligning, you know, yeah. Like you said, your values and your purpose. Yeah. And I think we forget that. And so, and it, I mean, that is something that if we can connect that nobody can take that away from you, no matter what stage or age you're in, in life but connect to what that, what your values are and your purpose. And it's hard to do because we get a lot of messages from the world around us about what's more or less valuable. And I think that's where, you know, for a woman leaving work and deciding to stay home or not, I mean, the world and the value that the world places on money and, and kind of, kind of disconnecting those things and, and kind of recognizing what truly is valuable in life. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. That's so critical. That's, and I think we still have a long way to go in that arena, right? Like long way to go. So, you know, another thing you, you and I have discussed is really about how being silent contributes to an unfair system. And I know that was a big driving force to your book, but maybe just dig into that a little bit, Jen, if you would. Yeah, I think we can do better in the United States. We can do better. Um, I think there's a lot of policy changes that are needed. I mean, I should pay more taxes. Um, We need a higher minimum wage. We need a stronger social safety net. We need to make reparations. I think there are so many changes that are needed at a policy level. But I, I also think that change can happen at a personal level. And I think it comes from actually talking about money and Mm. because, you know, because our silence um, just keeps the status quo in place. It keeps existing structures in place. If we don't question them, we don't look at them. We don't talk about them. Um, And at a personal level, silence keeps us from examining our own relationship with money and it can allow you to stay in your bubble, unaware of your own privilege So I think it's important, you know, for us as individuals and as families and as communities to be more open about money. But I think it has this ripple effect in our society because, you know, right now there's just the extremes are too extreme. And I think we need to to come together. I mean, I mean, I can just I mean, if you're thinking, well, how do we talk about it? Let me just share a story because I'm thinking just at a personal level where you're, you're disconnected with family members or fam or friends. And I'm thinking about a friend of mine who, you know, middle-class she said that she and her husband drove the same car for many, many years. 
And when her car finally broke down, she's like, I bought an Audi Q5. And it was a car she'd always wanted. She's really excited about it. But when she was thinking about visiting her sister and driving up in the car, she started to worry about being judged. Mm -hmm. In her mind, she heard her sister saying, oh, aren't we fancy? And then in her mind, she started to justify the car. Well, it was used. It wasn't that expensive. So even before she saw her sister, she was making assumptions and telling herself stories. What if she'd actually talked to her sister? Like, I think we often make assumptions and tell ourselves stories. And when we don't talk about something, it tends to loom large and take on a life of its own, which gives money so much more power. We need to take that power back and give that power to ourselves and put money in its place, not as something that's overwhelming or bigger than us or mysterious or, you know, something that will divide us, but as as a tool that we Mm -hmm. can then talk about. Um, So just thinking about like, if she had had that conversation with her sister and they kind of had worked through that, I mean, that would have connected them. It would have also made them more kind of aware of their feelings about money. I just think that, you know, that, and that's just a tiny start. Um, But I think, I think we can all be part of a a change um, in our world, in our own worlds. And I think that ripples out into change in our society because I think people want to do the right thing, as I said before. And I think, you know, people with a lot of privilege who aren't talking about money because they're embarrassed or they're ashamed. If you, as you talk about something, you can kind of get a hold on it and and then put it at its place. This is a tool. Um, Absolutely. It it is a tool and it's a tool to be used in in an effective way. And and to your point, it has a ripple effect. And I love what you, what you were saying though, a moment ago about had she just talked about it, right? Because, and, and that's something I do a lot of work of work with in my coaching business is, you know, movies of the mind and how we create these big stories, whatever it's about. Right. And, and, but if we can get to the root of that quickly, then you can actually understand that other person might not have felt that way at all, or that might not have been what they intended. If they, if they at one time had said something, it could have been just in fun or it, what, it, but we took it to heart. And so then that creates a bridge, right. Between the parties. So that is such a, that's such an important part about just talking about things openly and not being afraid to, and, and people work hard for their money. And sometimes to your point, I mean, you said this when we first started, like you were really lucky. You went to Microsoft at the right time that has allowed you to have a significant impact in the world. I mean, I know you're doing things for women and, you know, different communities for uh, raising funds for venture capitalists. I mean, you're doing lots of things that have such a great impact um, that people don't always know that that's happening. So why do you think especially women. <laughs> Why are we so resistant to talk about money? Yeah, <laughs> I think it's so much part of our culture. I mean, I, I think it is changing. I think my daughters are talking more. Um, this next generation is a little bit more open. I mean, I grew up in a, in a family where it wasn't polite and especially wasn't polite for women. And my, my grandmother wasn't even able to work. So we've never, women have kind of our history and kind of our, the, our gender role has been, you know, as the, the homemaker and not the breadwinner. And so I think these gender roles are really, really deep 
Um, you know, research tells us that we're still teaching our sons to invest and we're teaching our daughters about budgeting if we talk to them about money at all. So yeah. it's, it's continuing, you know, on along the same path and women, you know, I, I, I interviewed women for my book and, and one of the women worked in finance and she said, you know, the guys were high-fiving each other, talking about their bonuses, sharing information, and the women were not talking. And if we don't share information and we don't talk, we're never going to get to equity. And so I think it's, it's even more important for women to talk about money. We should be sharing numbers with each other our salaries, you know, how much we make by the hour, how much debt we're in, how much, you know, we're investing. And because that's how we, again, that's how we learn getting other people's, you know, ideas and, and hearing their stories. I think we learn a lot from hearing each other's stories. It helps us understand our own story. Mm -hmm. So talking about money, you know, right now my daughter is realizing, oh, she's getting paid less by the hour than some of her coworkers. And I'm like, you go in, you've got to talk to your manager about this. This is, this is where it starts and feeling. And I think there's a confidence gap. I mean, women, I, I'm hundred <laughs> percent, you know, feeling like I don't know anything about this. I mean, we need to step up and it's okay to not know and, and to ask questions. Right. And also we don't know to know every single piece of, of the puzzle to, to kind of know something, right. I think men can know one tiny kernel of information and suddenly they're experts. Um, oh, but, yes. <laughs> and I think, you know, we we need to just step in and 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 we I think women are we are powerful when we're together in community. And so learning from each other um, is really powerful. I, I think, you know, we need to share with each other and talk with each other and, and feel our own power. Um, yeah, I think women are amazing. Yes, I agree. <laughs> We are amazing and we yeah. do a lot, right? And so something you just said there um, is something that I think is really important is, is when we are talking about it, not being afraid to say things like, because I, I see this often, right? Where women will, you know, um, instead of investing in themselves or doing things for themselves, they will put it into the family, to the household, to the children. Men don't have that same, like they're fine to go buy the golf membership or to go and, you know, whatever, like I'm, I'm using that as an example, but women, we tend to hold all of that back because it's like, okay, we've got to provide here, which is good. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's, how do you, but it's also part of that. How do you know you deserve, right? And, and you and I talked about this a little bit and you talk about it a lot in your book about knowing when you deserve to have something or to ask for help or, cause that's all part of your worth, right? In, in total. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I'm nodding at everything you're saying because it's so true. And I think often, again, this is like, your mind can tell you, I deserve this, or I, I want this just, just as my husband's bought these things for himself. I can have this too. Like our gut kind of keeps us wanting to, 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 unfortunately wanting to please and wanting to connect and being very aware of the connections and the community piece, whereas, and we don't end up taking care of ourselves. Um, but if we know that, I think it's, it's just, I, I often feel like I have to remind myself of these things. My mind knows, but it needs to tell the rest of me that, that it's okay to, like you said, spend on myself or, or do something that is really, truly meaningful for me. Um, because if you're, 
if you do do things for yourself and you do recognize your, your, your purpose and your meaning, the more you can kind of connect with yourself and do what's right for you, actually, the more you're going to help other people too. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and it doesn't have to be spending right to your point. It could be how you invest in yourself by building community around you, the connections that you have, all of those things that help us propel ourselves. And, and to your point, there is a significant ripple effect because you're also, when you share, you're giving somebody else permission to share. Right. And it can open up some absolutely beautiful dialogue. Yeah. And you're modeling for other women too, that you can be powerful. You can be a leader. You can do what's right for you, which is often right for other people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Beautiful. I know we have a few questions in the audience, but before I open it up to the audience, um, what would be maybe two sage advices that you would share that people can, you know, start to do now something that they can walk away with and implement today? Well, I do think it's thinking about that person in your life um, where there is a a sense of disconnect or or friction or distance because of money. You know, maybe it's a friend who's, you know, always borrowing or, or a friend who always wants to go out to a really expensive restaurant that you really can't afford and that, but you don't step into that conversation that you need to have. Um, I'm inviting you to, to step in. And I think, you know, it starts with, you know, figuring out what's, what feelings are coming up for you. Like if you have a friend who's always wanting to go to really expensive places that you can't afford, you know, what is coming up for you? Are you resentful? Are you, no, you, maybe you're feeling ashamed and recognizing the feeling that you have. Um, and then finding a time, you know, kind of a neutral, emotionally neutral time to talk to that person. And, you know, when you talk, it's easy to say, oh, just talk about it, but we don't have experience or talking about money. It's not part of our habit. So it's, it's uncomfortable. It's still uncomfortable for me. It's, it's not something we do often or easily. So it's giving yourself permission to fumble around and to get messy and acknowledging that with the friends you're about to talk to, you know, I want to have this conversation and I don't really know what I'm doing. I feel really uncomfortable about this setting, kind of creating that safe space to have the conversation Um, and then sharing, you know, just really sharing and, and telling them, you know, I I really want to go to these places with you, but I, I can't afford it. And I feel ashamed about that. I have a good job, but I just, it can't, who knows? I mean, this is about assumptions and stories again, because who knows what your friend is thinking or what she's feeling. Maybe she'll say, I had no idea, right? Come, I'm, it's on me. Or, or maybe she says, oh, I had no idea. I don't care where we go. Let's just, let's just time together. (laughs) I would just want to be with you. Right. Yes, exactly. Or maybe she's like, well, thanks for saying something. I really can't afford this either. I'm in a lot of debt. I mean, who knows? So having that conversation, I think um, my advice is try it, see how it goes. I mean, it's it's not always going to work, but from my experience on the other side of that conversation is a sense of relief. It's also a real chance to connect with someone that you want to be more connected to. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also builds confidence for other conversations as well, right? Because when you're able to speak out, then it gives you the courage to speak out about other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Anything else you want to add to that before I open it up to our audience? No, thank you. Thanks for this conversation. I appreciate it. 
Oh no, we do. This is awesome. Um, so we're not done yet. <laughs> so I do, I want to open it up to our audience. If we, I know Sybil, you had a question. So do you want to turn on your, uh, your, uh, record or your, uh, monitor? Sorry, I'm having a hard time with words and turn off your mute and maybe just speak up and, and ask Jennifer what your question was. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Awesome. Okay, so I I wanted to I, I liked um, what Jennifer was uh, you know her um, connection between wealth and identity, but I have a different sort of a lens in terms of how I see that. So I I think it is absolutely uh, a huge connection. So in Black communities, um, Indigenous communities, Latinx communities, and I'm speaking in the U.S. although I'm in Canada, but we have the same communities. Um, our identity is shaped by the fact that we have fewer opportunities to actually generate generational wealth. And that's a huge issue that we need to confront. And you know, part of the racial reckoning has to do with this. And, and so, you know, it, uh, you know the, the, the one piece I wanted to, to ask you about is you were, you, you know, you've been in the technology industry and that industry has been one of the industries that has perpetuated these inequalities. And two years later, we're still not seeing the numbers rising in terms of the tech industry addressing those issues. And particularly also with Asian communities, lots of Asians are in the technology industry at certain levels, but they can't get into the leadership levels. So my thing, my question is, what are, what are you, you know, what are you doing to impact this reality? And um, I feel like, one of the things that we need to talk about is not necessarily just about giving, but what we want is for us to give opportunities so people can have well-paying jobs and not necessarily rely on handouts because that's not what we want. We want access to credit. We want home ownership. We want all the things that build generational wealth. So I just wanted to hear what you have to say about that. I so appreciate that question. Thank you, Sybil. And I, hundred percent agree. I want to try to address some of what you've said. So um, my, yes, I have been privileged racially and, and economically and my, and I don't like the gap that is existing. And I think it's so important to create wealth within communities that haven't had, who've been underrepresented, under-resourced, underbanked, and for years, I mean, the history of our country has led to this situation, right? <laughs> and mm -hmm. I want to cede my power and capital to help create more equity in our country. And I'm not only on a mission to kind of get us talking about money, I want to move my money and help create more equity. And I've been doing that. I'm, I'm, I've been giving to a, an organization called Seed Commons that is really focused on loans for people who cannot get loans within BIPOC communities. Um, we're now, I'm talking with them about kind of how, how do we kind of take, make riskier loans because, and loans that aren't extractive that are, and Seed Commons really does help people learn and takes them on the journey um, and doesn't just offer up money and then leave them or, or ask for repayment. I mean, they're doing the right thing for communities that haven't been able to, to build that wealth because yes, it's important to, to build wealth within places where that just hasn't had the chance because 
because of you know white privilege and 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 the whole history of our country. So I'm really trying to make a, a dent there with 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 my own and, and to let it go, to be very trust-based and and to recognize it that people within community know the communities and and I don't. And I I can offer up the resources, I can let go of the power and the and the and, and control and 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 I believe that 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 will make a difference. Um, I've been really focused not only on philanthropy but on investing in community. So I've been seeking out people who don't normally get funding. Women get three percent of venture capital. Black women get less than a percentage. So I've found a couple of black women who have incredible funds. One in women's healthcare with a lens towards. African American communities, Native American communities, um, LGBT community, communities that don't get funded and that whose products, you know, they, it, it changes who, what products are seen in the world. So how do you ensure that the products that are needed for these communities get funding? And so I'm, I've invested in her and, and in another woman who's all about investing in black women, um, a, a Latina woman who's a, who was working in technology um, who's had an uh, incubator kind of helping women kind of build their businesses and ideas. And she's invested in 50% of her investments are going to women of color. So I hear you. I want to be a partner with you in, in helping to, to change the dynamic that has been going on for 400 years. Um, I'm happy to get uh, to take um, some of your um, resources in Canada. So if you're interested, we <laughs> hope you bring some of that uh, resources to Canada to, to uh, support those communities that I just mentioned. Um, so diversity and inclusion is not, for me, it's not just a passion. It's my life. It's it's yep. my lived experiences. It's all of that. So happy to to talk with you. We have a lot of health inequities in this country as well, even though we have a great healthcare system, but the inequities are still showing up in terms of similar things like um, women dying, black women and, and, and immigrant women dying in childbirth at rates higher than average Canadians. So believe me, we have our issues here too. It's not just the US. But thank yes. you for that response and I appreciate that. The only thing I would add is that it also has to be at the systemic level. So we can't leave politics out of it because it's the rules and regulations in, in many of the US states um, where the, the, you know those decisions are made at the lower levels. It's not really made at the federal level. So we have to really work hard on those state and legislators and legislation to really move the needle. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Sybil. Great question. So um, we have a few more minutes. Anyone else have questions that you would like to ask Jen before we wrap up today's call? Hi, Jill. How are you? <laughs> Good. Good to see you. Good. I have a question. I actually have two questions, Jennifer. Um, first, I want to say, Vicki, thank you for organizing this. Jennifer, we've seen lots of um, webinars over COVID. This is by far the best one um, that I've seen, and, and this has been super informative for me. So thank you. Um, my first question, I just wondered, um, how did you find, you know, obviously you grew up in the corporate world and have been very successful. So um, just wondering a little bit more about how you manage kind of not just with the wealth side of it, but the success side of it and balance as a mom, as a wife, like how did you sort of still keep your mom and wife identity, but then still be this other powerhouse on the, on, as well? Yeah, thank you. I, that is hard. 
I mean, yeah, to balance those two things that I, I, I can't say that I did end up kind of holding both balls at the same time. I, I left Microsoft to stay home and I was with our daughters, you know, until, I mean, they left for college. So I, I, I did choose to, to, to be at home and I, and that was an identity, you know, issue for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent a lot of, I mean, I spent 14 years writing my book. So it was really thinking th- that through and thinking about my book and, and, and working on that. It's only been in the last 18 months that I have been out kind of advocating for conversations and, and recognizing our, our history and, and thinking about investing in philanthropy in different ways. So it's, it is hard to balance. And I, I, it, I wish I had that answer because I think it's, it's really tough on women. It's easy to be a working father, but being a working mother. And we saw that with the COVID, with COVID. so many women dropped out of the workforce because of this. Um, all the healthcare burdens, all the home burdens still fall on, on women. Um, if I had the answer to that, <laughs> I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's tough. And I think actually one of the things is making sure that we're helping each other as women. Um, and recognizing that maybe we can't have it all and, and, you know, making those hard choices, because if you try and have everything, you kind of end up maybe doing not anything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I don't know if that's, that's exactly true, but I think, you know, it's, it's hard to have, have it all, but I would love to have equity with men and make sure that they, and they have, I think men have stepped up in the last 20 years to take on more of the household tasks and and childcare, but obviously not enough because there's still, you know, five million women, or I don't even know the numbers that are still not part of the workforce because they're taking care of kids Mm -hmm. or parents or (laughs) yeah. Sorry, exacerbated by COVID too. Right. And so um, my second question was about that where, so I work for one of the uh, five Canadian banks on the on the wealth management arm. So I work with a lot of families, but a lot, if you think about it, like women live longer, divorce rates are higher now. So I, I specifically work with a lot of women and their wealth. And so this whole idea about identity and wealth, I'm loving this. And actually, I'll probably reach out to you separately too to see if maybe I could get you in for a session. Um, but the one thing I was going to ask is there's this whole women for women concept. And we know that women don't get as much, you know, funding, support, just, just everything. Um, And I have a lot of women clients who want to give and are more in control of money now than, you know, because they've inherited or widowed or divorced. And so they're always looking for these resources to say, well, who do I talk to about this kind of stuff? Like you said, you can't really, there's no, you can't always talk to your friends about it in the same, in the same way. But um, are there groups of like sort of these women for women philanthropy groups or things like that resources that I could direct them to? Yeah. I mean, I think this is a big part of normalizing conversations. Like it starts with the people closest to us within our families, and then it starts to ripple out and yeah, donors don't talk to each other. And I've, and that was part of what half my dad was about, like, wow, how are we going to get better and smarter and collaborate if we're not able to share amounts or how much we're giving or, and, and so many people that the con the idea that because you have wealth, you know, everything about giving it's people have no idea how to even start and there's a lot of fear around getting it wrong and a lot of overwhelm. Um, 
I have a lot of thoughts about this. So I could talk a lot. I, and, and again, I think it, it, it has to start with your, if you really want to make an impact, it has to start with your values because you have to be passionate about something or you're not going to be engaged long-term. And it's trying to figure out what that passion is. And then I tell people just start, you know, start with whatever it, it's again, a muscle that needs to get built. I didn't grow up giving it's taken me time to, to, to get there. Um, there are, I mean, I know places in the United States, women donors network, um, Solidaire, there's an organization called women moving millions. Um, so there are women's networks, um, around giving, uh, I was recently part of a, a great, I'm going to give a little plug for women with capital, um, where I was with a cohort of women and really looked at, at our, my portfolio in ways that I had, I had nodded through a lot of conversations with my financial advisor, but I didn't understand a lot of the terms and the jargon and I just let it go. And, and it made me really focus on, okay, where, because I want to make sure our money is not being, I want it to be put to use in where I have values, whether that's getting more of a social return than a financial return. I, I don't want to be in prisons or in oil or in, I want to look at every single piece of our portfolio and make sure that it's aligned with what we care about. And I've, I, I had never really been involved in investing before. So I'm, I'm in the, it's all a learning process. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I hear exactly what you're saying and I, I agree and, and it needs to be a conversation and, and it needs to help people kind of you know, talk about their wealth where they're, they're not, there's, you know, shame and, and, and guilt or whatever, and moving into a sense of purpose with that. So that's a much longer conversation, um, but I appreciate the question. Yeah. Thank you. Great, great question, Jill. Thank you. So I don't want our conversation to end, <laughs> but I, I do commit to one hour. Um, Jennifer, you've shared so many amazing, you know, thoughts and so much of you and, and really appreciate you taking time today to do that. And I really encourage everyone to pick up Jennifer's book. We need to talk a memoir about wealth. Um, it, it will keep you engaged the entire time you're reading it. You're not going to want to put it down. Uh, and there's so much great information of how that translates to so many things in our lives that we do need to open up and talk more about. So thank you for bringing that to the world and, and for sharing with us today. Um, I'm going to ask you, Jen, if you will, just to stay on for just a minute after everybody else leaves, but I want to share on uh, January 6th will be our next podcast. We have Jill Griffin, who will be sharing with us how to not only survive, but to thrive with brain injury trauma. Um, Jill has an amazing story that she will be sharing with us and the learnings of how to come back from it, from a severe disability and how to continue to thrive. So hopefully you can join us. That's January the 6th. And so Jennifer, I want to thank you for being here today and for, you know, really giving everything that you have to us. Um, the conversation has, has truly been amazing and I'm super grateful to have had you, you know, join us. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Vicki. And thanks for everyone for tuning in. Appreciate it. Yes. And I want to wish all of our audience a, you know, a wonderful holiday season. We are, you know, December the 2nd already. And uh, I look forward to seeing all of you in the new year. You've got lots of comments coming through on the chat saying, thank you. Fantastic talk. <laughs> Thought provoking. So ladies, I want to thank you all. And hopefully we'll see you in the new year. So thanks for joining us today. Take care, everyone. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for joining us for Will Talk, sponsored by Women in Leadership Empowered. To learn more about our programs, please visit www.willempowered.com. We look forward to seeing you in our community.